Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please subscribe to the show and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, really, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Per Hegenis, who is the CEO of the IKEA Foundation. And now most of our listeners would have heard of IKEA. It's a, it's a store I love personally, but many of you probably have not heard of the IKEA Foundation. And you will be amazed to hear of some of their amazing work that they're doing, both in terms of scale and the thematic areas. So, Per, without further ado, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast. Thanks for having me on, on the show. It's an absolute pleasure. Why don't we start by finding out a little bit about the IKEA Foundation and its origins and what it's all about? Yeah, so, you know, when uh, Ingvar Kamprad, back in uh, his, when he was 17 years old, started IKEA, he uh, developed uh, auto entrepreneurship, a very successful business over the years. And the vision of his business was really not only to make money, uh, more importantly, his vision is to improve the everyday life for the many people. Now, uh, the many people are partly those who have the opportunity to come to the yellow and blue boxes and buy IKEA uh, furniture and uh, home furnishing equipment. But it also the many people who are not able to uh, come to a store and cannot afford to come to a store. So for, for Ingmar Kamprad, it was, was important to be able to serve both. So mm. when he started to prepare for his death, as he said, he was around 50 and he, he only died a few years ago. So uh, and he made it another through another 40 years. But he was <laughs> when, he, when he started to prepare for his death, he wanted to ensure that his 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 IKEA, which was really important to him, would, would last forever. And he also joked by saying that I would like to control it after my death. Mm. So what, <laughs> what he actually did was to take the whole company and give it to a foundation and ensure that all the profits in the future could only be spent further developing the company or used for philanthropic purposes. Mm. And by doing that, he ensured that he had a very strong uh, business that was successful and continued to be successful and financially strong. And at the same time, freed up resources to do something for the many people who are not able to come to the IKEA stores. Yeah. And I love the IKEA stores. I know I mentioned that earlier, but I absolutely, there's something just magical about walking in there. So uh, now what most people don't know is that the IKEA stores, as we would think of them, are part of the uh, Inca Foundation, and you at the IKEA Foundation are the philanthropic arm of that. Exactly. So what he actually did was to give the company to a foundation. So our foundation, or the structure of Inca Foundation and IKEA Foundation, basically owns the company. So we are not an endowed foundation. We are the foundation that is funded by uh, dividends coming out of the company. As long as the company is doing well and people come to the stores or buy online and the company is profitable, we would be able to increase our philanthropic activities. Great. So that's a nice thing. Great. How long has the foundation been around? So the whole structure was set up back in 1982, but the IKEA foundations as, as an active operation with a, a management and a staff and a, and a quickly growing um, business uh, or foundation business has been around for 11 years. Okay. So, and I was, I was asked to come 
from my business background and, and do something that I hadn't done before, which is setting up a philanthropy and, and working closely based on the values and the concepts that made IKEA so successful to um, develop a foundation that can actually make a difference uh, in the world for those people who are, as I said, not able to come to the yeah. IKEA stores. Yeah. And the foundation itself, what are the main thematic areas that you're, you're focused on? Because obviously you can't focus on everything. So what's the, what are the main things that really uh, capture your attention? And we, I, well, Alberta, we, we've been come better over the years to be more focused as mm. a foundation to be able to not only create more impact, but also be able to uh, measure the the impact that we're making and, and learning from, from the work we do and, and, and become better as a foundation and sharing those learnings with as many uh, organizations that um, are interested so we can all become more effective in both collaborating and, 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 and driving effective philanthropy. Our key focus is to create a better life for children and youth and ultimately improve the child well-being in the world, children who live in poverty and in challenging circumstances. So as a foundation, we decided to do that in two different ways, not the obvious way, maybe, but I think it becomes obvious when I explain it. Uh, on one hand, before, we, we work to, to create more family wealth, enable families to afford a better life, because we know that when families have a sustainable income, they will invest it in their children's health and education. Mm. We know that from research. On the other hand, uh, our focus is to protect the planet and reduce the greenhouse gas emissions because we know that if there is, if if nothing is done very significantly and very urgently, we won't have a planet to offer those children that we help to a better life. So we have two main focuses: it's create family wealth, improve livelihood opportunities on one hand for people living in poor communities, and at the same time do whatever we can to accelerate the work that's done to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions. We, we decided to do that then five different portfolios. On the livelihood development, we look at employment and entrepreneurship. We, we believe that entrepreneurship is, is really key to build opportunities and, and livelihood opportunities for people living in poor communities. And, and employment is about uh, matching uh, people's skills levels or improving skills levels to job opportunities so we don't have a mismatch between what business is looking for and what people actually can offer. Then, secondly, uh, we have uh, a focus on what we call regenerative agriculture, and uh, so try to work hard to to bring uh, things back to where uh, nature is is working at its best, instead of uh, a short-term focus on on accelerate agriculture. We focus on bringing the nutrients back into the soil and having creating a good balance between people, animals, and and forests and and communities so that we have a balanced, balanced uh, landscape, so to say. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, improving the, the yield for smallholder farmers, since we know that smallholder farmers make up about 75% of, of the working population in, in areas such as Sub-Saharan Africa. And on the, on the, on the planet side, uh, of course, we, we, we could do a lot of different things, but we decided to break it down into two areas. Uh, uh, the two areas are climate action and secondly renewable energy on climate action it's it's about uh, addressing the issue which is related to the fact that we are not doing as well as we should to live up to the paris agreements and uh, mm-hmm. um, we have to create better solutions that helps people and, and planet uh, live together successfully uh, as you know, we have a li- very limited time left to meet these Paris targets, and we're not doing as well as we should. So, 
uh, our focus has been uh, strongly on what we call climate action, which is uh, mobilizing um, governments, businesses, organizations, people in general to think about what they can do to accelerate the work that we do to reduce the climate uh, emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, in that work, uh, we, we work with different organizations that work on the global basis and, and national basis and even local basis to um, focus on issues like uh, clean air, for example, or focus on issues that are related to businesses. Because as you know, we the businesses make up uh, the largest portion of, of, of the climate gas and the carbon emissions, such as yeah. through energy production, through um, cement, steel, uh, transportation. So, uh, and we believe very strongly that if you can't engage business to, to take a lead and drive development, then we're not going to get where we need to get. It's not going to happen through regulation alone. Regulation is important. Um, organizations, NGOs are important, businesses are important, and we just have to really get everyone together to accelerate this development. Mm. And tell me, over the last few months, I mean, it's been a crazy uh, first half of 2020. Uh, how have you been coping with this um, this pandemic? Well, it's been uh, just for us, like everyone else, a huge challenge to to deal with the impact of COVID-19. And when I look at uh, people that we normally are engaged with, the people mm -hmm. that we are trying to help to a better life, for them, I would say the medical side of COVID is less of an issue for them right now. The mm -hmm. biggest issue for them is actually being able to feed their families, access to to food, uh, access to to a home. People get evicted from their homes because their 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 income has disappeared. People have no money to to buy food because the informal economy is falling apart. Isolation and the restrictions have made it impossible for people to go about their daily uh, livelihoods. On top of that, you have borders restrictions, so goods are not coming into the country and not going out of the country. So right now, although COVID is increasingly also impacting from a medical perspective, I think the biggest concern for people is to, uh, in, in these countries, is to survive from day to day. Hmm. And that's a very different perspective that we have in, in Western Europe, because we are lucky to have uh, a system that can provide temporary support to people who are losing their jobs or are not able to work, but those systems don't exist in, in many parts of the world. And and then there's nobody else than yourself who could help you. And yeah. that has huge consequences for millions of people, obviously. Sure, sure. Once we get over this, what, what are some of the opportunities you see in terms of improving the, uh, the global system? Well, I think that uh, the way we decided to focus our strategy is 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 spot on in terms of what we need to do to help turn the world around after COVID had, has released at least uh, the biggest pressures that we feel like now. After, mm. after we have a vaccine and we can start to stabilize things, then it's it's really about enabling people to to have create a livelihood for themselves and feed their family and live in peace. Uh, we uh, on the climate side, I, I mentioned that we do climate action and renewable energy. We didn't speak much about renewable energy, but renewable energy is is critical, partly because not only because it it improves the lives of people if they have access to energy in rural areas and they can have lights and and kids can can study at night and and things like that, but 
energy means opportunity to build businesses, opportunity to, to improve uh, agriculture, livelihoods. Uh, access to energy is so important. And if we can provide access to renewable energy instead of trying to connect people out to a dirty grid, then that will become an important um, lever in, in improving the lives of, of, of many people in, in the global south, as you say. So as we go forward, you know, uh, we, we need on one hand, we need to, to, to build opportunities and help invest and build opportunities for people to create a livelihood for themselves. And as I said, I think entrepreneurship is the key, key uh, important driver in that. On the other hand, we also need to, to even more than before focus on, on the climate side, because if we don't do that, uh, there won't be a rebuilding. There, we, will, we will see a climate that has such a huge impact or our ability to create a life for our children and, and grandchildren. So that doesn't go away. Mm. Our concern has actually been in the, in the, in the last few months that this focus on the very important focus on climate action is taking a backseat because of the COVID situation. And, and that's concerning because, as I said, we have very little time left to, to live up to the Paris Agreement and, and do better than the Paris Agreement. Right now, we do worse than the Paris Agreement is set out to do. And for us as a foundation that has created uh, significant challenges because, you know, we, we have about 130 partners and 185 active programs around the world. Uh, all of those 130 partners would, of course, uh, after COVID set in, um, come to us and say, we need to rethink what we're doing. We need to change our agreement with you. We need extra funding to survive. I mean, all these kind of uh, issues that suddenly popped up with 130 partners. But we are a foundation that is run on a very lean budget. We try to ensure that we have a very low administrative cost and that most of the money that we can get from our um, funder, which mm -hmm. is IKEA business, can go towards the people we're trying to help. So we're not, we're not geared to deal with all partners at the same time. And that, and especially not at a time where, where many of our people are home with uh, children and no schools and no kindergartens. And it was really challenging. You, you might can, you might understand that we, I mean, we probably worked at 50% capacity. So this is really a huge challenge for, for our team. And we're working through that because the most important thing we can do after taking care of our own people is of course, helping our partners to succeed and, and live through this very, very difficult period. So yeah. for the foundation, this has been really challenging. How do you deal with that? So 130 partners, they're all coming up to you and saying, look, we need to, um, we may need to deploy some of the programmatic funding into core funding, or I'm, I can only imagine the sort of conversations you're having, 130 of those at the scale that you have. Yeah, yeah. we have a very strong focus on helping those partners and we try to help as many as possible uh, on as short a time scale as possible, but uh, we have to take one at a time. and. And prioritize as you have to do in business. You have to prioritize what is the most important, what is the second most important. Be very clear about what it is that we can do and how much capacity we can throw at this uh, by by deprioritizing other things that we were doing in the foundation and just said this is the most important thing right now. It's to help our partners um, stand through this very difficult time. Mm. Are you feeling optimistic about how things will shape up after the pandemic, both just in general in terms of? Uh, workforce and, and, and what the new normal looks like, and then also the, the climate side of things? Yeah, you have to be optimistic. And I am optimistic. I think this uh, an opportunity uh, like this, uh, a crisis like this also represents an opportunity. And if you see how the business has dealt with this, it's very clear that they look at this 
on one hand as a crisis, but on the second hand as an opportunity to accelerate development in the business and and think out, outside of the box. And as a foundation, we will always focus on uh, helping our partners um, think outside of the box, take risks. We would fund risky projects because foundations can fund risky projects. We can afford to fail if we fail responsibly, but that without failing, there's no development. Mr. Kamprad, the, the founder of IKEA, would would often start a meeting by asking people to tell about the failures they made. And Excellent. that's pretty un- unusual, but it creates an environment where it's a lot to fail. And and he would encourage people to do things that sometimes fail, but the learnings out of that is so, in- so, so important. And when it doesn't fail, but it's successful, you've developed something new and different that m- enables you to be better at what you do, be smarter at what you do, uh, reducing your prices, reaching your customers more effectively and so on and so forth. And we try to do the same thing with our partners. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Uh, well, I'm not going to ask you about your biggest failures, so that's, uh, we'll, we'll put that aside. <laughs> Happy to talk about the failures, but I think it's more interesting to talk about the successes, such as, that, such as the work that we do with, um, uh, with refugees, for Tell example. Tell me about and that. I know you've been very involved with refugees for, for quite a long time, and uh, it's such an important topic. Well, we're involved with refugees, but in a way that people uh, probably don't necessarily immediately understand. And mm-hmm. um, the backdrop of this is that we have we have about 70 million what we call forcibly displaced people in the world. Mm. Out of those, 26 million are refugees, and the rest of them are uh, most of them are internally displaced. That means that they have not crossed the border to become a refugee in another country, but they are internally displaced. And, and, and in many cases, in an even worse situation than the refugees. But let me focus on the refugees. And what we have uh, done is to say that we need to focus on refugee self-reliance. And, and the reason for that is that the average refugee is in a camp for more than 20 years. So they people get born and raised in, in refugee camps. And Traditionally, refugees are not able to work, not allowed to work, and not allowed to move freely around in the neighboring countries. Mm. And what we have done is basically said, well, if we can put resources against building livelihoods for refugees, and the countries will allow them to work, and we can do that for not only the refugees, but the host community that hosts the refugees, we, we can avoid getting the conflict between the host community and the refugees who have descended on their land, but we can create op- development opportunities for everyone. Hmm. And that's been our key focus and will be our key focus in, in the future. Refli- refugee self-reliance will be our focus. Now, having said this, most people who listen to this podcast will think about refugees as the people who have come to their country, whether that's Netherlands or Norway or the UK or Germany. Uh, that's a very small part of the world's refugees. And it's also the most resourceful refugees who come to who make it all the way to uh, to Europe mm-hmm. um, it, it, we think that's a problem it's not a real problem it's 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 not a numbers problem it's a political problem uh, contrary to Europe in sub-saharan Africa for example in uh, in Asia and Middle East we have countries small countries hosting millions of refugees and these are low and middle income countries and uh, we have an opportunity to help those countries host those refugees close to where their home country is. So with the home countries, we just stabilized again, they can they can go back to their country and help rebuild their countries. And we believe that's a very important task. At the same time, we work very closely with our colleagues at the IKEA business. And they have embarked on a program where they look at how they can 
create opportunities for refugees who have come to the countries where IKEA has stores, where IKEA has either stores or or supply chain business. And uh, they developed a program that enables refugees who come to the country with no background in that country, no knowledge about the culture, the language, and so on and so forth, to get the start by having a six-month internship with IKEA. Uh, after that six-month internship, they're uh, able to apply for um, a job at IKEA or in another uh, Company, but you know, if you have six months uh, experience from working at IKEA, combined with language training and cultural sensitivity training, well, then suddenly you have a different starting point. And it's not very difficult for IKEA to do this. It just takes the mindset to say we can do this, and we can do this at scale because we have uh, many stores, we operate in many countries, we have a strong supply chain uh, around the world, and we can actually do this. Mm. We can uh, we can do this, and if if every country would when every company in every country would, would do something similar to that and create jobs for thousands of refugees, which IKEA has done and is about to do in the process of doing, then then this will not be a problem because, you know, the only thing a refugee would like to do coming to Europe or the UK or to, to Sweden is to get a job, have the opportunity to feed their family and avoid being bombed every day. Hmm. So hmm. they're not there to get uh, benefits or, or, or to get treated differently. They just want to integrate in the community. And a good friend of mine who is also focused on refugees and has dedicated his wealth to refugees says that it's the moment when the refugee gets a job, that's when he or she stops being a refugee and starts becoming one of us. Mm. Is one of the main obstacles about getting governments to enable or, uh, or empower or allow refugees to to go ahead and, and seek this sort of livelihood in their local markets? It's very different from country to country. And in Sub-Saharan Africa, you will see different practices. And the most dynamic countries have seen that uh, refugees can contribute positively to society. And therefore, it's better to um, to um, move towards an integration policy and, and freedom of movement policy and freedom to work policy, as opposed to keeping them in a the camp. Sure. When it, when it comes to uh, Europe and North America, it's also different from country to country, but Europe and North America and Canada and other countries are used to, to take in asylum seekers in a structured way. And the problem we had a few years ago was, of course, that we had masses of people flee to Europe and the system wasn't able to deal with it in the way they're normally dealing with it. And and that makes for a, a lot of opportunities for people who would like to use this as a negative narrative, to use it as a negative narrative. And what we have agreed with IKEA business is not only to help create these jobs, and we also even set up supply chains in some of the countries uh, where refugees and host community can can uh, engage in businesses uh, for export. In Jordan, for example, we did that, but but actually engage in changing the narrative from refugees being a threat to refugees being an opportunity and and, and helping show the human side of, of, of refugees and, and understand that what, what refugees usually have been through has been a terrible ordeal, a terrible, terrible experience. And the fact that they made it all the way to a European country is a, is a huge feat in itself. And to be in a country and start on scratch with nothing and having left everything behind, uh, all their belongings, uh, a lot of their loved ones, is a pretty tough way to start. And uh, the help we can give them is, is, is the help they need. And um, we will have a refugee problem in, in Europe if we would just approach it in that way. No, that's wonderful. 
and anyways, a lot of the countries, the neighboring countries where the refugees are, are moving into the, the first point of call, those countries themselves are under many times very poor economic situations. So I imagine that sort of drives animosity between the local population and, and the refugee. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, without getting political here, um, it's it's unfair that a country like Greece that happens to be the first port of call for a lot of refugees based on pure location is is uh, is having to deal with such a big burden and not seeing the European Union collaborate properly to to actually um, uh, share the burden of of of, of welcoming in refugees to come to their country and, and helping them create a new life for themselves. We we are both focused on children, Alberto, and uh, if you take a look at Greece right now, we have more than 4,000 unaccompanied refugee children roaming the streets. Refugee children who are uh, without any family, could be uh, down to seven, eight years old, who have absolutely no opportunity. And, and there's been a lot of focus around this. We we have a partner in Athens that will 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 provide shelter for for a number of these kids and help these kids work through their traumas. They're often heavily traumatized after what they've experienced, sure. and work through their trauma and get on a track to get an education and build a new life for themselves. But the needs are enormous, and how, how, now we're just talking about the unaccompanied children. We're not talking about the tens mm-hmm. of thousands of refugees who are. Uh, with no opportunity right now, settled in camps in, uh, in, in, uh, on the Greek islands. Hmm. That's a very sobering uh, picture that you're, you're giving us here. Um, how did you get into all of this, by the way? So you came in from the private sector, and now you're running one of the biggest philanthropies out there. I'd love to know a little bit about your journey, your, your personal uh, narrative, your, your, your professional trajectory. Yeah, you know, I... I believe that most things in life happen by coincidence, and uh, that was definitely uh, the reason why I ended up here. I was um, asked to take on this job uh, purely by by a, a first by a headhunter and then by by the chairman mm-hmm. of, of, of the foundation. And uh, I thought it was a fantastic opportunity to use my international experience, my business experience, and and do something new and different. And and doing that on the back of a very strong brand, uh, IKEA, that has a very strong uh, set of values. And for IKEA, values is something you live every day and you you integrate in everything you do. It's not something you have on the wall. Mm-hmm. And people at IKEA know instinctively what to do, what's right to do, because the whole values underpin everything, every decision they make. So I wanted to create a foundation that operates in the same way and at the same time work very closely with the business. And as I gave you the example uh, with, with refugees, there are things that we can do as a foundation. We can invest in livelihood development for refugees in host countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, in, in Middle East, in Asia. But the, com- the company can actually provide jobs directly and they can provide jobs and they can use their, their platform to advocate for for the importance of refugees. And, you know, we talk about refugees and immigrants as a problem. I mean, if you look at the population growth and population development in the world, I mean, we're going to see a time not too far away where we will fight to get immigrants to come to our country to do mm. the work because we're not having the fertility rates in Western Europe or North America or, or in parts of Asia that's going to be able to to fill the jobs and then pay for 
old people like myself who are getting older and older because we have such good health care. Yeah, yeah. Was it a steep learning curve coming in from the private sector into, into the world of philanthropy? It's a very steep learning curve uh, because it's a totally different world and you also face a lot of skepticism out there in the, in the typical uh, philanthropy and NGOs and UN organizations because they think business is something bad. That's a, that has developed a lot over the last uh, 10 yeah. years and, and they see uh, businesses as in a private sector as an important player in trying to drive the big agendas that we have to drive together in the world, such as the, the climate agenda, for example, but also the agenda of, of enabling uh, the millions of people who are born every year in sub-Saharan Africa to actually create a livelihood for themselves and not being forced to to flee. Because we have to remember that most people who come to Europe or come to North America, they don't come because they want to leave their country. They come because they've been forced to leave their country, either, either by conflict or by climate change. And climate change is probably mm. now forcing more displacement than than, than conflicts. And that's still just going to increase in the years to come. So we just have to prepare for that. And my my philosophy and my, my belief is that if we in the Western world can focus our attention on helping build business opportunities with local business, national and international businesses, and with a strong focus on entrepreneurship, we can enable people to create a life for themselves in the countries where they are born, as opposed to being forced to flee and look for opportunities in other places because they can't feed their families where they where they are. Indeed, indeed. So tell me, you've been with the foundation now for just over 10 years, I, I gather. Uh, what what does success look like to you in the next 10 years as we as we approach the 2030 uh, year for the for the UN Sustainable Development Goals? Well, this UN, the Sustainable Development Goals are so broad and we can't all do everything. So our focus is on one side being to actually ensure that we live within the planet, the borders of the planet, the planetary borders, so that we can actually uh, also have a livable planet in uh, for the next generations. On the other hand, have a situation where we understand the the demographics, the the, the population movements, uh, the population growth and the challenges that that creates, but also the opportunities it creates. Mm. Because if, if you think about sub-Saharan African countries, most of the people are, I mean, 50% of the people are under, under 20 years of age. So the age structure is so different to uh, to what we have in Europe. It's, 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 it's the opposite of what we have in Europe with an aging population. So so if we can engage and take advantage of the energy and the entrepreneurship and the, the abilities that all of these people have, then of course we, we have an opportunity to take advantage of that. And if we can't take advantage of it, it's going to turn into a problem. So I hope in 10 years that we have done what we can to, 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 to reach the 2030 target set by the Paris uh, Convention and hopefully done better than that at the same time that we have made huge strides and huge progress and understanding what's going on in the world and how we create the world that is in balance where, where people can live together, where inequality particularly has been um, at least improved upon significantly compared to where we are today because inequality in my view is, uh, is, is the root cause for a lot of the problems that we see in the world. Mm. Before you, you head off, let me ask you, 
for a key takeaway? What's the key thing that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? It's really that we have very limited time left to uh, preserve the planet and ensure that the world lives within the planetary borders and does whatever it can to reduce greenhouse gases because without that, uh, almost everything else becomes secondary. Absolutely. Limited time indeed. You've heard it here. Per, thank you very much for joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. It's been really enlightening. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in as always, and please subscribe and share widely with others. You've been listening to Per Hegenes, who is the CEO of the IKEA Foundation. Per, thank you very much. It's really enjoyable. Thank you, Alberto, and thanks for the great work you're doing because it makes a big difference. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.